0: Let's open our Bibles this morning again. First letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. We're moving into into some of the detail now. Um, For our visitors' sake, to kind of catch you up, Paul has been speaking about the divisions in the church um, and and some of the personalities that were involved, but what he's really focused on, the big picture, the divisions. He's addressing... The divisions in the church. We talked about that last week. And again, I want to stress: this was there last week. I really didn't point it out like I should have. But it's something Paul will do throughout the Corinthian letters. Um, Paul doesn't get into the detail. You don't. You won't find Paul getting into the weaves of the weeds of who's right and who's wrong, or ever choosing sides. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He addresses the big picture, the divisions, and 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 the effect that has on the church and um, I think we need to practice that ourselves when we're maybe at odds with a brother or a sister Um, we need to get big picture it makes a huge huge difference and that's gonna play into our text this morning because um, as as I've been stressing the last few weeks we've been looking at Corinth it's just so important to get the big picture of the letter and follow the issues that the letter addresses and frankly for me chapter 4 has always been kind of a challenge because it's kind of hard for me to do that. So one of the things that, again, I, I share this benefit to your own study, is that when you're finding yourself in a spot like that with Scripture, like, I really can't figure out what's going on here, look for what we call the imperatives, where the author says, do this. This is the thing you need to do right here. And that can be really helpful. And we'll do that. That's the lens we're going to use in this chapter this morning. There's three times in the chapter Paul says, do this, Right? And the grammatical term is, it's imperative, right? Some people call that the, the, the command, the grammar of command. I think that's a little bit too much. Uh, it's more simply, this is imperative that you do this. So that's how we're going to look at this particular chapter this morning. So we start in chapter 4, and we're going to read the first five verses, because there's three of these imperatives do this in the first five verses. And then there's a third one later down in verse 16. So, You're not confused now. I don't know if if you will be. We'll try to make some sense out of what I just said. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. Then looking down at verse 16, Paul writes, I exhort you therefore the imitators of me. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and as we look to it this morning, Father, our prayer is that our mind and heart would be open for what You have for us. The truth we need, Father, as we, Your church, Father, um, strive to be Your witness, Your voice in this community, Father, as we individually uh, seek to follow You. Give us Your wisdom, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the chapter, three specific do this things, right? Imperatives, we call them, right? Three specific directions. And they're in response to the divisions he talked about in the first chapters, right? The divisions that the church is experiencing and he reasons for the divisions. So let's, let's take a few minutes and look at these. First he says in verse 1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Take this perspective. Paul's first instruction regards perspective. There's a way, he's saying, I want you to regard us. There's a way I want you to think about us, and it's going to have to be a deliberate choice on your part. This adjustment will not take place if you're not deliberate. And we talked about last week, the divisions in the church were at, result, at least in part, over personality. I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollo's personality-driven divisions. Paul is saying the only way you're going to get past those divisions is by changing your attitude towards those teachers. Change your attitude. New perspective, right? He wants them to regard them differently. And there's some key words in in that statement. The first word is let a man. Now, the word is anthropos, which means person. It's not He's not just talking to the men in the church, okay? We got to get that. Other translations reflect that. Let a person, so again, some translations put it that way. Let a man regard. That's the word logizome, and they mean where we get our word logic from, okay? Logizome, logic. He says, I want you to deliberately apply some logic here. I want you to process this, okay? I want you to change the way you think about us. And that's a reference to all the leaders he mentioned in previous chapters, right? And then he says a couple of really important things. He says, I want you to regard, I want you to think, reason, us, these leaders that you're so in love with, right? Including himself. He said, I want you to regard you first as servants. And the word he uses for servant isn't the normal New Testament word for a servant. The word he uses for servant here is iperitis, iperitis. Now, If you you look that up in a dictionary, it'll tell you the Iperitis in the first culture was the servant of a big shot, right? It's like in the movies when you see the person, they go to the house and they open the door and they need to talk to the big guy and somebody else answers the door. Hello, what do you want, right? And the message is clear. You want to get to the big guy? You got to get through me, right? That's the Iperitis. Now, if you're called into ministry, that's kind of ego gratifying. They think that I am the servant of the big guy. And I, I hold this important place, right? There's a certain amount of gratification in that. Until you look at the next level of the definition, right? The word actually comes from two other words, as so many Greek words do. You know those movies you watch of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, the big ships? The guys down inside, they're rowing, right? where the word comes from. So, yeah, I'm a servant of the big guy. I'm his galley slave. There goes all legal gratification, right? Who wants to be a galley? I mean, they don't even know where they're going. But what are they doing? They're doing their job. Just doing their job. Where are we going today? I don't know, but I'm rowing, right? What does the master have in mind? I don't know, but I'm rowing, right? Paul says, I want you to see us as people. Yes, we are appointed to our task by the king himself but I'm just a guy at the oars, right? I'm just doing my job, right? And then he says, see us as servants and seers, see us as stewards. And we've talked about this word so much. This is the word economos. Again, two words. Ecos, which is house. Nomos, which is rule or law. It's the rules by which the house is run. And that can apply in a huge sense, like an entire economy. That's where our word economy comes from. The rules by which... A culture runs its economy or it can be one house that person in charge of the master's affairs and the thing about a steward is the steward is always managing somebody else's stuff and he will always answer to the somebody else how he uses that and of course jesus will, will talk about that this is the word he uses in those parables In Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 16, where he talks about the righteous steward and the unrighteous steward managing somebody else's stuff. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, here's the perspective you need to have. You need to see your leadership in a proper light. Yes, they work for the king. They row the boat, right? And they are there serving at his commission, but definitely answerable to him in the way they do it i.e. stop elevating one over another. We're so given, they were given to that in this culture, we're most certainly given that to our culture. We want to elevate one person or another to their their ability to speak or their ability to worship. Can Can I go there? Worship leadership now. Certain names get really elevated. It's a dangerous thing to do. It's a dangerous place to go. Paul says stop doing that. Stop getting caught up with personalities Regard us as mere servants, as stewards. That's the first, first step. Then in verse 5, Paul has another imperative. What he basically does in verse 5 is turn the positive imperative to a negative. Right. At First he said, this is how I want you to regard us. Then in verse 5 he says, stop regarding us this way. Stop doing this, right? He says, judge nothing before the time huge misunderstanding among believers about this whole issue of judgment and judging, and so many people, especially non-believers, are so quick to say, but as Christians you shouldn't judge, right? Didn't Jesus talk about not judging one another? Yeah. Very same Jesus said judge righteous judgment. John chapter 7, verse 24. So obviously there are times as Christians when we shouldn't judge, and there are times when we should judge, right? So it takes some of that discernment stuff, right? Well, how about here? What Paul is not saying here, what Paul is not saying is, you know, if you're if your leader in any capacity in the body of Christ, they go off the deep end and they get into, the, you know, blatant sin about which they are unrepentant, or they get into just off-the-wall doctrine that he's not. Paul's not saying you don't say anything about that. No. Bible's very clear. Body of Christ addresses that issue. But that's not what he's talking We're talking about judging between the relative merits based on the style of ministry or particular skill in presenting the gospel between between Paul and this guy Apollos and Peter and others Paul said don't make those kind of judgmental evaluations they are dangerous stop regarding particular teachers or Anybody in ministry, worship leaders, anybody, as being somehow better or more special or more spiritual, in fact, leave that whole matter of evaluating people and the way they're able to serve, leave that to the judge who will judge those things when he returns. When we step into that place and start weighing, well, this preacher against that preacher, or this prophet against that prophet, or this worship leader, so what we're essentially doing is, Jesus, I'm going to do your job for you, don't bother. Not everything we want to be caught doing. Leave that matter of judgment to Jesus. Because what we are all about, all of us in the body of Christ, is building His church. We are all called to build His church and do the place He has assigned us to. And He said back in chapter 3 that we're all building on the foundation which is Christ. And it is He who will evaluate each one's work. And that is upon His return, right? Right? Verse 5 is an incredible statement. Chapter 4. He says, I'm sorry, it's the wrong page. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come from God. Don't judge this stuff now. Wait for Jesus' return. Now, I will admit to you In my Christian walk, when the subject comes, has come, I'm getting better, when the subject comes to Jesus' return, my first reaction is, you know what, that's great, when he comes, I have absolute confidence that he will, and when he does, it's going to be the most incredible thing that ever happened, but as for right now, i got my hands full. I really can't think a lot about that. I don't think a lot about that. Paul is saying, stop thinking that way. Paul is saying in this, in this particular verse, now it's regarding a single issue here, but this is just one example, to import the reality of his return into every decision we make. Start weighing in the present the reality, the promise, the surety that He will return. And I will honestly tell you, when I start doing that deliberately by an act of will, it changes the way I respond to things in the here and now. It changes my priorities. It changes my valuations. It changes how I see people. When I import into the present, and I have to do it deliberately because it's not my instinct, when I import into the present the reality that Jesus is coming and His reward is with Him, that is both well done or as the case may be, not so well done. We read it in back chapter 3. Each person's works to be tested. For some of us, that will be poof, wood, hay, and stubble in the fire. For other precious stones, gold, silver, it lasted. What lasts? Building the kingdom in other people's hearts. That's the only thing that passes through that fire. You import that reality into an everyday decision as Paul is talking about here. He said, you guys are struggling to get the right attitude towards you know, leadership in the church, your people in the church, and you're elevating one over another. Get, get your mind off of that. Bring into the present situation the fact that Jesus will take care of that when he comes. And that is so important to me because, remember, he's talking about divisions in the church. It's not just they like somebody better than the other person. They were so focused on personality, it actually began to divide the church. And they were having a hard time bringing the church back together. Notice what Paul doesn't do. This should resonate with parents. What Paul doesn't do is simply say, stop being divided. Stop fighting among yourselves. What do we as parents say? You need to learn to get along. How well does that work, parents? Zip. right? They're still fighting. You have to, and these parents know this, you have to give them a reason to get along. Now, as parents, that usually means make not getting along more expensive than getting along, right? You have to enforce it from a negative way, but that's just because of our limited skill set as parents. We need to be honest about that. Paul is saying here, actually, no, it isn't that different. Paul is saying you can motivate yourself to set aside these divisions by focusing on what truly counts. Christ's return, and he will come, and his reward will be with him. Focus on building the kingdom. And let's face it, your divisions aren't doing that. There is nothing positive coming out of your divisions. Positive doesn't come out of division. So start to look big picture. See, that's a foundation upon which the Corinthians can build this new perspective, getting the big picture. And what is the big picture? Remember, your leaders are just servants. They're just stewards. And they will answer to Christ. Right? And then he drops the bomb in verse 6. Actually, everything I just said about Apollos and me, I was talking about you. I'm talking about you guys. Get the right attitude about yourselves. Lose this idea that you're something special. And he says in verse 6 things like, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you think you're so special like you did it? No. We all stand equal in this matter. At our very best, we're just doing the job Jesus gave us to do. Is wrong. This is especially important for those who are especially successful in life. Wow. Success is, is a grand, grand thing. It is, but it's also a trial. You often hear people say, you know, trials come in our life, it's like the sponge thing, you know, squeeze a sponge, you know what's in it, right, because it comes out, right? Success is just, just as much trial. It's just as much a test. Proverbs 27, verse 21 says this, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and each is tested by the praise he receives. You ever think of praise, adoration, affirmation as a test? Oh, it most certainly is. Because you find out what's really inside. When we are doing well, by the world's standards, and there's nothing wrong with success, don't get me wrong, when we're doing well, we need to be really careful because success can be dangerous. I don't exactly know why, but this brings to my mind that magnificent scene in Fiddler on the Roof when, when Perchik, the young idealistic student, the communist, comments to Teviev, money is the world's curse. And what is Teviev's response? May he strike me with it and may I never recover. Yeah, that's our mentality. And that's not in our, I love that. It's, We need to be careful when that's our priority. And that's a theme Paul will come back to again in the letter. But it's for now simple to point out that Paul and Apollos are on the same page. They're both servants. They're both doing their job. And we need to keep that that in focus. And again, Paul doesn't try to solve the whole problem. Just the main one. And in the verses that follow, and I do hope you'll read the rest of the chapter that you read it before this morning, that you'll continue to look at it, all the way down to verse 15. He just gives them good, sound reasons to adopt this new attitude. Let's just do what Jesus gave us to do and stop comparing ourselves one to another. So that's the first two imperatives. Get the right perspective. Stop judging matters that Jesus said he would take care of when he returns. Now we come to the third imperative. This is down to verse 16. Verse 16. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Does that sound like a contradiction to anybody else? He just got done saying, stop elevating us, stop lifting us up, now you all be an imitator of me. That sounds awfully contradictory to me. I mean, if you're just a steward, why do I want to follow you? And he says, I exhort you, it's pretty strong. Be an imitator, that's the word, mimitis where our word comes from. That's an imitator. Now, he does in chapter 11 put a limit on this. Over in chapter 11, verse 1, he'll say, same phrase, be an imitator of me as I follow Christ. So he puts that qualification on it. But there's actually something else going on here that we need to be aware of. Paul doesn't say, imitate me. He says, be an imitator of me. The actual imperative, the verb, is a verb of being. You need to be. Your being, your character, needs to align with the way I do things, which is exactly what Paul had said of himself. Paul was not bashful to hold up his manner of living as a model because it conformed to the Gospel. And if his living had not conformed to the Gospel, he would not have said that. Be an imitator. He's talking about being. One thing I've noticed about... People, I, I don't mean to criticize anybody, it's inherently critical I know, when people kind of get caught up into that thing of comparing one preacher to another or one worship leader to another or one church leader in any area of ministry to another, they really get caught up in, in admiring their teaching, but they very seldom emulate their lifestyle. You know if you think fill in the blank, whoever is your you know go-to guy, right? If you think he's that great, live like he does. If you think she's that great, live like she does. Don't get caught in the trap of just affirming what somebody says without making your life match theirs. Because that's how the kingdom is built, how we live. The kingdom is built in the way we live. So Paul says, I want you to notice how I live and live like that, right? This is what he's talking about in the Philippians letter when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do the hard work of working out your salvation so that it's not just something you say, it's what you do. Which brings us back to the whole matter of discipleship. And that is why the what we are is so much more important than what we say. What we live out being so much more important than what we say we believe or with whom we identify, right? Look, look, at, look back, just one verse. We were in 16. Look up just one verse to verse 15. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, he's speaking to the Corinthian church, you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. That's what he's saying they should imitate. The kind of personal investment in their lives he had made. And if you know about the Apostle Paul's journeys at all, you know that when he got to Corinth, he wasn't in the best of shape. He had been in Athens. Athens was a rough place to try to start a church. If you don't believe me, search the New Testament for any reference to a church in Athens. You won't find it. It was probably a low point in Paul's ministry. It's about a century or two before we find any reference to a church in Athens. Now, there were believers there. That's clear from the Acts account. But as far as an established church, you just don't see it. Paul had a rough time in Athens. It did not go well, right? He arrived in Corinth in weakness, and he immediately went to work making tents. Found another believer, another Jewish believer, went to work making tents. Preached in the synagogue every Sabbath. Paul preaching one day a week, not the Paul I know, he was burned out. He was weak. But out of that, he would invest three years of his life in Corinth, longer than he would spend anywhere else. He invested his very being, even out of his weakness, in building up this Corinthian church. And as I said, for all of its problems, it's still there. 2,000 years, Corinthian church is still there. You won't find a lot of churches from the New Testament that are still there. It's still there. He did a good job. Built up a church. Paul said, if you don't like who I am now, at least remember that guy. The guy that came to you and invested three years of his life in what you did. Who fathered you. Wasn't just a tutor. That is a brutal word. In the the economy, in the culture of the first century, that was a brutal word. Tutor. Um, The word is... I can, I, it comes into English, but I can't pronounce the English. Molly, I'm counting on you. Right? The, the Greek word is pedagogos. Can you pull it up? I know this is cold turkey, no warning. Thank you. Right? I knew you could do it. Right? And it, it has the idea of educating children, right? But in, in the culture of the first century, what the pedagogos was, or the, I can't say it, was the slave that was appointed by a rich person to educate, in quotation marks, their male children, right? They supervised their education. That wasn't the real job. The real job was to keep the kid out of trouble. Son did not step out of the door of the house without the slave with him. And if he got out of line, even though the, slave, even though the child, the son, may have been the heir of, of the estate, if he got out of line, the slave had full freedom to smack him around. And some were brutal. Paul said, you can have lots of people who say they're concerned with your well-being and present the gospel and portray themselves as teachers. That doesn't make them a father in the faith. He said, I was your father in the faith. I invested my life into you. You know, Paul makes a really interesting statement in 2 Corinthians 11.20. And it kind of illustrates how easy it was for the Corinthians to slip into that mindset. In 2 Corinthians 11.20, Paul says, For you tolerated if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts you, or rather exalts himself, anyone who hits you in the face makes no sense. But when you see it in the cultural model of the day, that's what they expected of their teachers. Paul said, I wasn't that way with you. I was with you as a loving father. Paul said, that is what I want you to emulate. The humility even the weakness that I exhibited as I followed Christ in your presence. So what's the plan for healing division? Number one, get the right perspective, get the right attitude. See people for who they are, what they are, what they're called to be. And in the the normal kinds of mistakes we make in leadership, extend grace. Just as we expect grace to be extended to us. And then to see ourselves rightly, correctly, sinners who have received grace. That attitude is so so important. Avoid the wrong attitude. That's the second one. Avoid passing judgment. When tempted to pass judgment in any way on another believer, whether they're a leader or not, asking ourselves, exactly what am I passing judgment on here? And is this something I'm supposed to be passing judgment on? Are we talking about gross, unrepentant sin? complete, total doctrinal error like heresy? Or is this something less than that? In which case, maybe I should withhold judgment. Am I really doing what Jesus told me He would do later? So the first one, get the right perspective. Second one, avoid the wrong attitude. Thirdly, become a spiritual father or mother to somebody else. Not a lecturer whose job it is to keep other people in line. You know, one of my goals is to see Christ formed in the people around me. That's not because I'm a pastor, that's because I'm a believer. One of my life goals is to see Christ formed in the people around me. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a believer. Because what else will I take into eternity? That is true of every one of us. Only as we have invested and seen the kingdom grown in other people's lives, that's the only thing that makes it through the fire. Getting that attitude goes a long way towards solving perspective issues. And then lastly, number four, and this I really had not touched on this in the chapter yet, but I would now, avoid the poison of pride. I talked about that each of the last weeks. It's all the way through the Corinthian letters. Avoid the poison of pride. There's a great word that occurs twice in this chapter. I didn't touch on it because it doesn't fall right in those three imperatives. It's found in verse 16 and it's found in verse 18. It's translated arrogant in most translations, void, arrogance, Uh, but it isn't the usual word for arrogance. Um, It's the word, it comes from the verb fissai, which means to blow, fisai, to blow. That's a Greek word you can use if you live out like in that part of town. What's the weather like, fisai? Wind's always blowing, right? Beside the wind blows, but fisao is a form of that verb that describes what happens to your face when you blow, mm-hmm. your cheeks all puff out, right? And it's a word that in practice literally means do not be puffed up, and that is what pride does to us, that is what stepping into a position of, of arrogance does to what it puffs us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that expression, puffed up, the first thing I see is that fish, right? The fish that when they get angry or when they get upset, they, they puff up, right? Puffer fish, right? I learned something about puffer fish this week, totally incidental to this. I don't know how I came across this information. I was looking in the news that It was, right? There's concern. I don't know. I'm sure you might. There's concern now among divers. They're telling divers, stop bothering the puffer fish. And a lot of people that have puffer fishes in aquarium, puffer fish in aquarium, stop scaring them. Because it's fun, you know. Well, whether you have them in an aquarium or whether you're out diving and you see one, Bleh! and the fish goes, yeah, that's fun to watch, right? But they're finding something out. It's not good for the fish. You know, puffer fish are toxic. I don't, they're, they're very toxic, very dangerous, right? It's in those quills and it's all through their flesh. Fortunately for the fish, they're immune to it. If you're going to be toxic, it's very important you be immune to the toxin. I know a lot of people like that. So, very few of you got that, I'm so sorry. Um, when the fish inflates, though, some other things happen. That toxicity, whatever part of the fish creates the toxin, it just goes into overdrive. And the toxicity of the fish triples. Which makes it a lot more dangerous to anybody around it, right? That's the whole point. But what they're finding is, and this is still a new idea and it's highly debated, but they're finding when the fish puffs, the toxicity level can exceed its own immunity. And the fish actually begins to suffer from its own toxicity. I know a lot of people like that. Right? The third thing is this, and this is so obvious. I don't know why somebody didn't discover it first. When the puffer fish does that, right? Right? they're not exactly doing the rest of their internal organs any favors. you imagine what happens to the poor thing's heart? All of a sudden, the whole body just inflates. It compresses all the other internal organs. And what they have found is that there's actually like, and this is the part that's still being researched or figured out, is, is there like a number of times a puffer fish can puff before they die? There appears to be. Arrogance, pride, being puffed up. Toxic is fatal. Both to those around us and to ourselves. Father, I just thank you for your word. As the Apostle Paul uh, dives into the situation in Corinth, Father, that he had so much invested in. Father, he spent three years of his life um, in this church, and now he finds that he, he's being kind of set aside by a lot of people because they just they like somebody better. And And Paul, Father, has the self-discipline to like set himself aside, set his own ego aside, and say, let's talk about what's happening in the church. And let's talk about the pain and the destruction that division is causing because we know that's not good. And Father, we're so grateful that instead of just, instead of just telling the Corinthians to stop it, like we might do, <laughs> he, um, he gives them some real practical guidelines, a new perspective, good reason for that perspective and some very practical warning give us wisdom father as we go you know through our week through our days lord to be mindful of these things in all of our relationships pray this father in jesus name amen let's stand and worship the lord this morning